You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Can you think of another species on Earth that has had more impact on, on human evolution, on our development in the last five, 6,000 years? Is there any other animal that has had a bigger impact than horses? What can they teach us? I think the world record on the horse is like 53 years old. Yeah, the oldest horse in the world. Wow. But most don't live that long. I, you can hear me kind of breathe. Like, how long am I going to pay for this horse? <laughs> 20 more years, yeah. <laughs> 20 more years, Many species are in crisis and need your help. On how they were extinct in the wild and international collaborations were made because we were like, whoa, this cannot happen. And they were bred in captivity and then we released with a huge success story. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. All right, welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. I'm Chris. Hello, I'm Angie. And Angie, today we have to be very careful that we don't end up talking for like seven hours. <laughs> I know. It's going to happen. You'll, I know. You'll just have to edit it out. <laughs> I know. We have to get it down to one hour because that, that's our goal is, is one hour or less. And today we are talking about a special horse. A very the, special horse. Yes. The uh, Przewalski horse is how I pronounce it. Przewalski's. Is how I would pronounce it. Right. But I think for the remainder of the episode, you're just going to hear me say pee horse. The pee horse? <laughs> the horse that pees or is it just the pee horse? <laughs> <laughs> just the pee horse. That's what I teach my son and that's kind of the lingo in the industry because right. it's way easier to say. Yeah, than the uh, the Polish version. Yes. Or it's also called what? What do we call it? Uh, it's called a taki. Right. The taki's the the really the, the real name for the Przewalski horse. Yeah. But I will say Przewalski horse because that's what I... I tell my my students and and every everybody else, why are these guys so cool? This is this is I know we've kind of alluded towards towards it. You know we're 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 a bunch of episodes in now. We've talked a lot about conservation. So and one of the things you and I have talked about is not being all doom and gloom. No, there's a lot of there's some wonderful stories out Good there. Good stuff, mm-hmm. right? And even the episodes like before we hit record, you and I are talking about our future episodes, and we want to bring some really cool stories, zoo stories. So we're going to be bringing that to the listeners here pretty quick in a few weeks. But this one is probably one of the best stories of conservation success. Right. It's my all-time favorite, A, because I love horses, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and B, because uh, humans help save these guys. And you've taken care... Not Now, I know you own some horses, yes. and you know I've been working in the horse industry for close to 25 years now, mm-hmm. but you, you own your own horses, and when you were a zookeeper, you took care of some, not horses, but... Zebras. Zebras. They're cousins, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. And that's where yeah. I went. I learned... All about wild equids. Right. There you go. Before right. that, I had known a lot about domestic equids and lived, you know, lived with and taking care of horses for years. I kind of had my um, bleep handed to me, yeah. my ass handed to me. Uh, when I, wild ass, yeah. yeah, when I uh, <laughs> when I started working with uh, gravy zebras because it was a whole new learning curve. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. These guys are not domestic. No, no. Wonderful personalities and gorgeous. As all get out, but they are not domesticated and uh, very powerful animals. Just teaching me, give me a lot more respect for ha- 
the evolution that must have right, happened right. to survive uh, in such a harsh environment in Africa. Yes, yes. Right, and, the, yeah. and that's, I think, the, the zookeeper that taught me ever said probably to smarten me up so I wouldn't do anything stupid around them, said, these aren't horses. Yeah, a, a kick from one of these uh, zebras is about as powerful as a hand grenade. Yeah, they will kill you. Now, I don't know if that's scientifically tested. <laughs> How, <laughs> however, it's darn strong because right. obviously any wild equid, mm-hmm. inclu- including the pea horse, has about one one big kick to mm-hmm. get away from a predator mm-hmm. to, to survive. Right. So um, they use it. And so you don't. And that's what's crazy. You know, and it just after, you know, the last episode, we talked about leopards and predators. Mm hmm. And how we were kind of talking about they just don't take the, the sick or the, the weak. They, they actually go for healthy animals and one kick from a from a zebra. I know leopards didn't go after grubby zebras, but lions, you know, you see it sometimes in, on the nature shows, mm-hmm. you know, lions getting hit and mm-hmm. breaking bones. and Oh, yeah. Oh, it's horrible. It's horrible. Anyways, yeah, the wild's tough. It's, yeah, it's well, and, and in our, even for domestic horses, I this weekend uh, I took my family. We went to a little fall Halloween mm-hmm. festival to get pumpkins and do the do the hay rides and all of that, and it was also a ca- uh, um, a cattle farm too on the side, and we got to go feed the cows mm-hmm. and whatnot, which was awesome. But they had the horses and some of the horses in with the cows mm-hmm. because they're they work with them on a right. daily basis to move them from pasture to pasture, and I was. Even me in my thirty-something years, still learning. Right, I love to learn. Right, right. I was really surprised that those there was two horses and about mm, twenty had a cow. Mm-hmm. A couple of them had horns. One of them was a bull. Mm-hmm. And guess who was most in charge and got the most treats? The bull. <laughs> no, the horse. The horses. Really. <laughs> And I couldn't believe it. And I said to the rancher and the guy running this like, cool little Halloween event thing I went to, I said, I don't understand how these horses are right. so greedy. They're getting like all the all the treats, all the the, the cow cookies. Yeah. And he said, Oh yeah, those cows know one kick from that horse is is painful. It's yeah. painful or end of it, life yeah, even. Yeah, they could kill them. And so I just couldn't believe it. But yeah, yeah so even even on the domestic side of yeah. things, um, although they are. Technically, prey animals, right. hoofstock animals, yeah. uh, horses, domestic horses, and wild horses are—they're a force to be reckoned with. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Well, the Przybalski horse is—you know—we're talking—we're going to talk a lot about horses today. Obviously, that's why we got to try to keep it under an hour. But they're the last true wild horse. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. We always think of mustangs right. here in North America, um, but the Przybalski is. Truly a wild equid. Right, right. Like a zebra and like, like uh, the Somali wild ass, like I, I said, which we'll talk a little bit about today. The Mustangs or the ones in the United States or even in South America and some in Asia, they're feral horses. They're coming from domestic populations that were, were released in the wild. Or the ones in America can date baked, uh, can date back to the Spanish right. in the 15th, 16th century, mm-hmm. mid-1500s, that got away from them, where the Spanish actually, you know, reading some of the history in South America on the Criollo horses, they were purposely let go, and they thrived in these environments. And so they're feral, they're wild, quote-unquote, but they're not a true wild horse. They've been domesticated for a few thousand years, handled by humans, bred by humans, selected for behavioral traits... That made him less crazy, I guess. <laughs> Calmer, per Calmer, yeah, yeah, there you go. That's a better word. Because horses are still crazy. They are some still are, crazy. Some yeah. are. Uh, Arabians, uh, anybody. Good old but, Arabian. And I think that's an, uh, a very interesting thing 
with their ability to be re-released into the wild or if they were domesticated then to move out back in the wild because they are a prey animal and they just need to eat grass. Right. And right. and obviously, obviously try to move away from predators. As we mentioned, we were talking about leopards and how they're a predator. That's a little bit tougher to re-release into the wild as um, because a lot of the hunting skills mm-hmm. are really refined and taught from mom. And if you don't learn them from mom, they can be hard to learn. But yes, no, horses re-release tend to do pretty well, pretty well which... Yeah. You're going to hear throughout this episode the happy, feel-good yeah. story about the pea horse. Yeah, the Przewalskis that have been re-released. So the Przewalski horse being the last wild, true wild horse, they actually went extinct in the wild. So there was no remaining wild horses, true wild horses. The domestic horses come from a, a lineage called a tarpon horse. That's where all of our domestic breeds came from. Mm-hmm. And then they went extinct in 1909. The, there was one left in Russia that went extinct before World War One, And then the Przewalski horse. So the Przewalski horse was all that's left. And it's actually, you know, the talkies, the, the really the, the name that we should be calling them. But most people are just going to recognize them as a Przewalski horse because it was named after a Russian, uh, I guess he was a Colonel Nikolai Przewalski. It's a big Russian word, <laughs> you know me and my words. So Przewalski is actually the Polish spelling. Um, but he described the horse in 1881, and that's when the Europeans were like, oh, look at this cool animal, when the native people to Mongolia and China have known about this animal for thousands of years. Right, yes. But because, you know, us Westerners... We like, we, to, yeah. well, we like to classify things, right, and right. so I think after 18... Late 1800, early 1880s, when um, Przewalski had talked about right. them, then I think uh, a lot of European zoos and uh, wanted these specimens, yeah, specimens of to, to classify horse. them to see: are they domestic? Are they wild? Right. Where do they fall in? How do we put them in and a then, box? Yeah, and there was a, a big push. I mean, I, you know, I guess not to to poo poo on my heritage because of European heritage that we did do a lot of a good with nature and. There was a big push in the the 19th century to understand. Sure, yeah, these are all museums, right, artifacts, right. bones. So uh, even yeah. though we were kind of horrible to some of the animals, and just you know, one of my favorite museums in New York City, the Natural History Museum, and you go in there and you see all the specimens and the babies. They killed all those animals, you know, yeah, and stuffed and- them, and uh, yeah. They're cool to look at, but then you're like, oh my god. No, uh, I, Baby I, cheetahs, like we talked about the last episode. And they're, yeah. Oh yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a Midwestern girl, so the Field Museum is where I grew yeah. up in Chicago going to. And uh, yeah, on the lower level floor, it's all they have animals that they, they have about one of everything, it seems yeah, like. that they hunted. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they don't do that much anymore. That was, that was over 100 years ago. Anyways, okay, back to the Brzewalski horse. So after World War II, there was only about two populations that survived. And like I said, they went extinct in the wild. The last sighting was in Mongolia in 1969. Mm-hmm. There was one stallion they saw, and then they never saw him, saw him again. And actually, it was kind of in the desert region of Mongolia, reading the story about that, that because humans and have really pushed them out. Of course, yeah. That was like the last refuge for them, and it wasn't a very hospitable environment for, for the Przewalski horse. So so went extinct in the wild, but thankfully there was handfuls of these animals in zoos around the world. Right. Then you boiled them down to 12 animals left mm-hmm. that could reproduce. And that is where the population remained into the 70s. And that's all we had left was this dozen Przewalski horses. And in the. Well, yeah. uh, oh, and uh, just to interrupt. 
unfortunately, too, a lot of that was before we had reproductive technologies to potentially either harvest gametes Mm -hmm. or sperm uh, or oocytes to freeze them and potentially have a higher diversity, a higher genetic diversity. You know, if we we jump a little bit ahead to the repro part, the the reason this this animal is doing well is because we do understand as much as we do about horse reproduction compared to other species like rhinos or elephants or you know lions. Even lions, I know. Well, we know we have domestic cats, so we can kind of compare that. But so with these twelve animals left in the nineteen late seventies, nineteen seventy seven, a group came together mainly Europeans, but I'm sure some Americans uh, jumped in there too, and other zoos throughout the world, they they formed the preservation and protection of the Przewalski horse. And they made a huge effort to re- breed these animals, carefully select their genetics, because as we'll get into, this population is highly inbred, because there was only 12 animals left. Right, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe they threw in a couple domestic horses too. They did. Too. So there was some... You know, so they're not really a true wild, wild Przewalski horse that we had 100 years ago. There's a little bit of domestic genetics in there. Very small. Very small. But they did contribute a little bit to it. And But the good thing is, out of these 12, it's led to almost 2,000 animals today and reintroductions into the wild. So it has been a huge success story for zoos, zoos conservation, and the efforts of conservation specialists to rehabilitate a species and put them back in the wild where they belong. Yes, an international collaboration. Yes, yeah, many countries, many different uh, researchers, things like that. So talking about the reintroduction of these animals, they've been reintroduced into China mm-hmm. and Mongolia. So there's five, I think it's... It, oh, there's also been some release in semi-reserves in, in the Ukraine and Russia, I think, too. There, there's two other places that they've, they've kind of... They're not so much in their natural habitat, but big parks that they've put them in to, to let them breed and reproduce and be fine. Which they've successfully done. Yes. So there's yes. been uh, wild-born... Przewalski horses, mm-hmm. yep, that are running around Earth now. Oh, so, that's so yeah. great. So you had 12 in captivity in the, in the late 70s to now you have about seven 800 animals in the wild mm-hmm. that have come back. So that is that is the, the, the idea, the, the goal that we were talking about in the last episode, like with the Amir leopard, you have 60 in the wild, 200 in captivity. If we don't have these animals in captivity, they're extinct. Okay. If we didn't keep this Przewalski horse in captivity, the species would be gone For and sure. extinct. Mm-hmm. And we can't let this happen. We no. can't let these animals go extinct. No, and ideally we would never get the numbers down to 12 or 60 or 50. Right. But unfortunately for... A lot of animals, uh, be it megafauna mammals and some of the mm-hmm. reptiles and amphibians we've discussed, the numbers, unfortunately, are that low now. Right. And what will we do with that? Do we right. just let them live out their natural lives right. uh, in, in the wild and most we'll likely become them. die off? Right. You know, or is there a way we can intervene? And if we do intervene, how much do we intervene? Right. How much can? How much does it cost? Who do we have to collaborate mm-hmm. with? Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a you know wonderful group of you know. Um, scientists working and fighting for many of these species, of species, but not all of them. Right. And with the pea horse, there continues to be great research um, here in the United States at the um, Smithsonian mm-hmm. Zoological Institution. They are well known 
for their work with the Brazil Seahorse and continuing to learn more about their behaviors mm-hmm. and about their breeding, of course, mm-hmm. right? Because we don't want this to ever happen again. And right. the cool thing is, is the Smithsonian Institute can boast first artificial insemination a successful live foal right. that was born about like four years ago. Right, right, right. So really cool things, and they're trying to learn more and more about these guys if the population, A, to re-release more, mm-hmm. and then also, too, if there is a population crash, that we have a handle on the right, genetics. Right, Because, we, yeah, we can talk about as far as it, the, you know, the inbreeding with these these animals and their lack of uh, natural uh, resistance to diseases and mm-hmm. stuff. So if, they, if there was a, a deadly disease that wiped out the mm-hmm. wild population... At least we have animals in captivity that, as a genetic bank, right? Sure, and 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 it should be noted too that in Mongolia and, and China and some of these areas where they live, the weather can be very harsh mm-hmm. and very cold. And in fact, there's historically several really bad winters that have not wiped the population right. out, but severely decimated it. Right. And we cannot necessarily predict with climate when that's going to happen right. again. So. That's why you don't want to be down to 50 individuals mm-hmm. again. You want the higher numbers. So they the, can, the, old, the natural, the right, natural, the natural life natural cycle. The, back mm, and forth with Right. Them. Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, reading some of the scientific literature this week about them too was I, I didn't really realize this, but the Przewalski horse, and it makes sense that I knew the equids played a big role, but they were actually one of the big four terrestrial species. There was, you know, during the ice age, there was the mammoth, mm-hmm. there was the bison, there was the woolly rhino. And then there was the Przewalski horse. Like all my favorites. Right. They're all, that's Angie's, that's, maybe, Angie, maybe you're just, you know, your last, your last uh, life was in uh, 10,000 BC. Totally a reincarnated hoofstock. Yeah, that's where uh, you are. Uh, you just, all of a sudden you just jumped uh, 10,000 years into, the, into today. Or I feel like I might be like an old blues player from the Delta. Yeah, One of those. Probably both. Yeah, maybe. Now, looking back at the evolution of the Przewalski horse, and, and really, you know, horses in general. Uh oh! Should I? No, this is great I, stuff because should this, I go get a drink of water? No, or take no, a that's bath later. And break? That's later when I get to MHCs <laughs> and uh, get into a little bit of this genetic stuff. For then those, you for, can fall. For asleep. those of you listening for the first time, Chris really likes evolution. Yeah, evolution's lot. awesome. It's a it's lot. amazing because the horse is the best species we have. That I do agree with that. Evolution. I, you know, I was in 4-H at like seven years old. I think I started, and I didn't even have a horse. I was right. just in 4-H to learn about horses. And my first project mm-hmm. was hand drawing and mapping out the timeline mm-hmm. from the horse as it evolved. Bear with me because I forgot my stuff yeah, from like yeah. 20, 30 some years ago. I uh, started with the Mesohippus. It's, it's down there. It's, down. Like the, it's the Dawn Horse's Eohippus. <laughs> okay. You're close. Okay, one of those hippuses. Right. Um, but anyways, I had That's to draw. I remember that though. Thank you. So, yeah. Since like seven or eight yeah. years old. 4 H. It's awesome. Sign your kids up. <laughs> uh, that's one of my mini plugs today. Right. Um, but yeah, and then I had to draw it out, and it really was interesting to watch how they evolved from like a little fox-like critter mm-hmm. into the modern-day horse. Right, the huge horses that we have today. They've actually, where some of the megafauna have gotten smaller, like we talked about the rhino, the giant rhinoceros of Siberia. Right, what was the giant saber-tooth? Yeah, I don't even ask me to say that word, but yeah, yeah the big, the mm-hmm. one the size of a horse, where horses have actually getting, gotten bigger. And actually, through breeding, you know, today the Shire horse is the largest horse on Earth. We've gotten them as big as they've ever been versus not evolution naturally. They've gotten from smaller to bigger. 
So yeah, no, that's good. That's good, Angie. You remember Thank that? You. And they, I, I also remember <laughs> that they they had toes, lots yes, of them. Yes, yes. And the, now they the have one hoof. Right. The now they're the odd-toed ungulates. The reason the evolution of the horse is so well known is because they evolved in North America. Some a little bit ble- bleeding into Central and South America, but mainly North America is where they evolved with okay. rhinos. Wait, so so let's back up the bus. Mm-hmm. The horses came over with the Spaniards. The domestic horses did. Okay. They went extinct in the U.S. or in North America about 10,000 years ago with that, that extinction with the megafauna. Okay, but they the, stayed over in Europe then. Yes, they were still in Europe and Asia. Wow, okay. So horses Eohippus and Mesohippus and Merihippus and Dinohippus and all the hippuses. All the hippuses. <laughs> you go up that tree. That all happened here. Okay, cool. And because we had such a interest in geology and archaeology and all that stuff, we've actually discovered a lot of their bones in North America. So we're able to describe the evolution of the species better than almost any other because there were so many bones in the ground that we had found. So you ha- and and then you see how they're those multi toes, you know those five, four, three, and then those three toes, the the two outer toes start migrating up the leg, and we can see, we 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 get bones with all these little nubbins and stuff as they go up, and I'll put some on the show notes and kind of show show it to you. the The one you were talking about, the mesohippus, is is one that I really think is cool because that is the three toed horse. And they actually had kind of a hoof, small oh, like, hoof. Okay, like an in-between. Right. And then the two outer toes, the different species of, of mesohippus, and I think merihippus too a little bit. Those two outer toes, they've done some x-rays. Initially, like a long time ago, they were all weight-bearing. So those three bones were like very thick, I guess, is, is, is a good way to describe it. Very thick bones. So it shows that they were they were they they held all the weight. Well, over 10 million years, as those two digits start to get less and less weight-bearing, the, the, the x-rays, they get smaller and smaller, less dense bone. And now, and then we have some iterations where those two outer, two outer toes are actually up higher on the leg with the horse. And then they get that one single hoof. And now they have little Spunk remnants. bones and stuff, yeah. And then the night eyes and things that they think are, are remnants of that. Now, the, the rhino... Has kept the three toes, right? And they they split off like forty five million years ago, a long time ago. And then the horse, the only one that's left, or you know, there's horses, zebras, all those things. That, equids, that, equids. They came with the single hoof. So yeah, it's it's it, very interesting. And obviously, I could talk about this for an hour, and I'm not going to. I could listen. <laughs> I could listen about all this. Now, the one that they can trace them all back to is called the Hagerman's horse, mm-hmm. and they found this one in Idaho. They think it kind of looked like a zebra and a donkey and, you know, kind of a smaller horse, pony-sized horse, I guess, Okay, is, is the structure. That was like one of the very first equus, you know, equids, uh, forerunners, right, forerunners of today's Brzezowski horse, mm-hmm. right? So that's who we're talking about today. So you can go back to them, their ancient ancestor, and then they split off, and then... In horses, they, they talk about the cabaline lineages, the non-cabaline lineages. The cabaline lineages are your horses. Your nons are your asses and zebras. And then so you have your Asiatic wild ass. You have your African wild ass. Then you have your multi-species of zebra, the grevies, the grants, the mountains. The, yeah, there's like three of yeah, them. Yeah, the three big ones. The donkeys, and I know we kind of talked about this, and yeah, I'll talk about the small wild ass real quick. 
that is the most endangered equid on the planet today. I think, and I didn't know this, but it was it was really you that told me all about this this one. And Angie said you need to go visit this conservation center because it's awesome. It is awesome. I yeah. want to frolic around there. I know. I want to live there. Oh, I just, <laughs> I just want to live there all day. And starting down this path so many years ago. I've learned about the Somali wild ass and I went with her to a conservation center here in Florida where they are very successful in breeding these animals. There's maybe 300 left in the world. Not a lot. Yeah. No, no. And they are just beautiful. And they are actually the last wild donkey. I guess yes. we call them wild asses. I mean, that's their name, but they are the, where donkeys came from, mm -hmm. where all of our donkeys came from. And they're beautiful. Domestic donkeys. Yeah, they're beautiful. They got the white striping and they were part of the African wild ass. Mm -hmm. There was the Nubians, which went extinct about 30 years ago. Atlas wild ass in North Africa went extinct in like 1300s. Okay. And then you have the Somalis, which they are in, in a very tough situation because sure, they're, they're in a very hard part of the world, right? Well, and they're more, yeah, they're more, like you said, they mentioned they are more endangered than actually the Przewalski horses. Right. Yeah. They're, they're uh, as far as if you're looking at a, a numbers game, of course, uh, zoological institutions are breeding them and mm -hmm. and hopeful hoping to do similar things with reintroduction as was as they did with the pea horse however there are lots of challenges mm -hmm. because of their natural habitat and where they're located as far as conflict it's really and, hard part of africa mm -hmm. and somalia and mm -hmm. entria and that part of the world ethiopia i mean ethiopia is pretty stable country but that part of the world is very contentious, right? Sure. Southern Sudan. Right. You know, right. So you don't necessarily want to release an animal if it's not going to do well with either illegal yeah, hunting yeah, or... or killed for meat. Mm -hmm. I mean, or bushmeat. Yeah, bushmeat. That, hey, here's an animal. Let's eat it. And uh, they do that to survive. So, But thanks to Angie, I, I started down this path and really started jumping into... We did some behavioral studies with these guys, some minor stuff, and then... Just getting involved with now rhinos and, and elephants and all the things that the great things that we were doing. Now, the difference between a Przewalski horse and a domestic horse, there are some major differences. There are. Right, right. And what's cool about the Przewalski horse, and, and I guess we'll talk about some of the physiology, they're pretty standard, whereas today in horses, we, I mean, as far as what they look like. Yeah, there's pretty, I mean, right. they all look alike. They right, all have a similar right. coat pattern. They're all similar in size. Right. I mean, obviously, besides juveniles and then, yeah. you know, male and females, but they, they look a lot alike. Right. And we're domestic horses. We have little ankle bite. I call them ankle biters, the mini ponies, <laughs> which are hilarious. You know, mini ponies that you, you can make wear boots and they can be in your house. <laughs> So Not that I want that. No. In case no, my no. husband's listening, I would never want that. Yeah, I never want a mini, <laughs> a mini pony in my in, house. In little boots. Yeah. Um, no, they're pretty cool. And then you have the Shire horse, which can stand like seven feet at the shoulder, which is incredible. Humongous, yeah. Right. And all different coat patterns mm -hmm. and all different. Yeah. So, so humans have, have done a lot of selection and breeding for certain traits. Whereas the Przewalski horse, you know, obviously they look the same. But genetically, really quick. And just talk about chromosomes. Uh, oh, come on, chromosomes really quick. <laughs> All right. The in the chromosomes of the cell, the horses have sixty-four, right? Mm -hmm. So we we know that we get thirty-two from mom, thirty-two from dad. We won't do a whole genetics lesson. Do you know really quick to interject? Yeah. Um, as a student, I always have to, you have to learn, memorize all these facts. Right, right. And I always use tricks to help me memorize things because, well. Otherwise, I would never be able to remember all. <laughs> never I, pass your yeah, exams. I would never pass any any exam. And so, interestingly enough, I can always remember 
the horse is 32. Right. But I always forget what humans is. Oh, yeah. But yeah. how many, I always forget how many human have. So since a horse has 64 or 32, I take that 32 number and humans are the reverse. Yeah. Humans have 23 Three, right. or 46. Right. Is that math 20, right? Yeah. 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 No, you, <laughs> so, you can add. Yeah. So all listeners out there, if you can remember that a human has 23 or 46, you can remember that a horse has 32, 32. or 64. Mm-hmm. Or you can remember, and we should probably do a plug, and they should probably pay us some money, is 23 and me. Well, now there's that, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I remember that. You, you have to remember the humans now. Yeah, if you've 23 and me. Have you yeah. done that? I haven't done that. No, no, no. no. But I know it's coming, like as far as genetic medicine and yeah. we're getting there with technology. Yeah, it might be a fun Christmas present for like my husband or something. Yeah, 23 like. and me. Is that ancestry? I don't mm, it's yeah, an- yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm, 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 we're mutts. We're, we're, oh, we're yeah. living in the U.S. So. Mutts make the best dog. Yeah. Are you me? I love <laughs> that. I, I German for sure, uh, Croatian, Serbian. So I might conflict with myself because they don't like each other. Well, you think this, but see, you <laughs> can do the twenty three and me, and there might be some other stuff in there. And then I can go question my mother. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> mom, don't listen. Every every grandparent's worst nightmare. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. All of a sudden, I'm Spaniard. What? <laughs> yeah. Little Native American thrown in there. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. No. Um, yeah, so the chromosomes are different in the Przewalski. So horses, we know, domestic horses, 64. Przewalski horses is 66. And right. then even if you look at uh, donkeys, and donkeys are all 62. So mm-hmm. all the wild asses and donkeys are 62. Zebras are all over the place. You have 56, 44, 32, and 45. Truth be told, I have never memorized the zebra ones no. because they're all different. They are way which different. Which is Crazy. kind of annoying. Yeah. <laughs> and they all, and looking at, Zebra and donkey evolution history, they all came from a similar ancestor about two to three million years ago. Yeah. It's that just... migrated to Africa and then one split off to become zebras, one split off to become donkeys. And now they have tons of different zebras. Yeah. And all different chromosome counts, which is weird. So anyways, the whole purpose of this is to show that the Przewalski horse is not the originator of all of our domestic horses. Exactly. It's the tarpon. And that's now extinct. The tarpon for the horse. Right. right, For the horse. And also for all of the, um, for all the pea horses that have been either either in a captive setting or reintroduced, even though there might be a little bit of domestic horse in there, they all still have the 66 chromosomes. Right. Right. So they're still sitting at 66 chromosomes. So we know that our domestic horses did not come from them. Doesn't mean like, you know, long time ago, Przewalski horse had some influence on there, but they're really not. They're really a separate species lineage of equidae. So interesting stuff. Now, what we do know about the historic, historical ranges, like I was telling you, the bison, woolly, uh, rhino, mammoth, and the Przewalski horse really range, and probably tarpon horses too, to mm-hmm. some extent, range from Asia to Europe, North America, when extinct in North America, with the the megafauna extinction that happened with when mammoths got wiped out, but still persisted in parts of Asia and Europe. And then really, probably because some of this domestication was happening, and, you know, as humans settled more of Europe, more of that part of Asia, they, these, these animals got pushed farther and farther east into Mongolia, remote regions of Russia. And that's where we think of them. Right, today. Mm-hmm. So looking at the, the scientific history of them, and what scientists think is they probably ranged all over the northern part of the world, but due to human pressure, they've really gotten fragmented down the last few thousand years 
to where Specific. historically, right, in the last few hundred years, what we do know for sure, you know, really goes back from like Genghis Khan onward to the last six, seven hundred years, that they've been isolated to Mongolia, parts of Russia, and parts of China. So that's really where they where they are, and that's where they're being reintroduced today. But like I said, there's a couple parks in Russia and Ukraine that have done that. Now, Chris, speaking of Genghis Khan, yes. um, doing a little bit of uh, research into the history with humans and our background with these beautiful pea horses, they, of course, are in tons of cave paintings mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, everywhere, of course, from China and Mongolia, I think even into Greece and Rome. Right, right. So, you know, and that's, you know, tens of thousands of years ago. But even more recently in the literature with Genghis Khan, there's a, a story goes that one of these pea horses crossed the path of Genghis Khan mm-hmm. riding one of his prestigious mounts. Mm-hmm. And his horse, his domestic horse, reared and spooked went upon seeing this pea horse. And so whoever caught and brought him one of these takis, one of these wild horses, would you know be forever endowed, be right. great. And this was when they when they brought him a pea horse, it was considered a very prestigious and rare gift because right. these wild horses, we're not domesticated no. and we're so and we're so hard to catch. Right, and so elusive, right? So they've yeah. kind of always become this this symbol Mythical. of, you know, which even in the North America Mustangs are wild right. and you know, freedom right. and all of that. And I the think symbol of it. I think that, that has stayed true historically, you know, even now. Mm-hmm. And then the other main really important fact for the history of humans you already touched on how they were extinct right. in the wild right. and re released. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how we internationally came together as a community and said, wait, wait, wait a second. Mm-hmm. Now, fast forwarding now to our current history with them, you already touched a lot on how they were extinct in the wild and international collaborations were made because we were like, whoa, this cannot happen. And they were bred in captivity and then re-released. Huge success story. But I think it's interesting to take our human history with them or take – what we learned. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, there's some quote out there. It's probably by Einstein or who even, <laughs> yeah, I could Google it. But where they say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing twice. And, yeah, over and, and over ex- and over. Again. Over and over yeah. and expecting different results. Right. And so I think that with these, you know, with, with the success, successful story of them being reintroduced, we don't, we need to learn why they went extinct in the first place. Right. Right. Yeah. What caused, what was the pressure? What was the cause? And, and we've touched on a lot of it with, in our other podcasts, but with the pea horse, the mm-hmm. digo, you know, a big, large land mammal that, you know, really went extinct in the wild. I mean, basically experts have traced it back to differences in cultural and political beliefs, mm-hmm. which hello, I mean, right, what's happening right. here in the States um, uh, right. yeah. Of course, um, hunting, and that could either be, you know, whether it's illegal or legal, um, climatic change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are all things that we're seeing here in this day and age. And, of course, competition with livestock right. and land pressure. I mean, yeah. these, uh, and I'm sure you'll get into it in the um, in the diets of what these animals eat, mm-hmm. but they need, they eat grass. And they, all day, yeah. And they eat it like 16 hours a day, and they right. need a lot of it. Right. So they need room and they need to be able to find this grass. And they're not migratory, mm-hmm. at least currently they're not. Right. But is that because we, We've we make them, them, right, we make them, them not parts, migratory right. or whatnot? So, and then once again, too, animals that live in harsh climates, especially like in China and Mongolia, 
I mean, harsh winters can knock out their population. Right, right. And and then these are truly wild horses. And Grant, they live in a reserve, but the reserves they live in are, I mean, humongous. Huge. Yeah, huge. Yeah, yeah. And so, but then there's competition for water and, mm-hmm. and other resources, mm-hmm. which naturally, historically, they would have that competition. But it's even probably more concentrated when there's less room and more right. animals. And we even, you know, it's funny, you even, even see some of that in the United States with the wild horses the debate that's going on within this country as far as how to manage them what's the pop, what's the st- sustainable population and ranchers in conflict with wild horses absolutely you know there's there's people out there you know raising cattle on these lands in direct conflict with wild horses so that's a big discussion in this country it is it really it, it it's is a, it's a nightmare to try to deal with it because these animals don't have their natural landscape, right? We've, we've isolated them to, to pockets in this country and we're like, this is where you're going to live. And they happen and they have to be very successful and they're breeding really well Mm -hmm. They're And so there's a balance of like, they're starving. Some of them are starving, you know, whatever. So yeah, same thing with Brzezowski horse in that part of the world. So, yeah, I think the, one of my other take home messages today is that we, we understand we it's, they're complex issues. Why species Mm -hmm. go extinct and they're different for different species. But there seems to be a lot of similar patterns. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's a bunch of stuff coming together at mm-hmm. once. Like right, right now. It's like so synergy. Years, yeah. But synergy is like a positive word. This is, is like. This is like. Bad mojo. Coming dis-synergy. Dis-synergy. Yeah, I don't know. Horrible. Some word I just made up. But yeah. So it, it's, you know, it's not just like, oh, let's not hunt them. That you know, Oh, let's not, you know, let's give them as much land as possible. There, there's just a, a lot of angles. It's got to like come. This. Yeah. It's got to come. We have to come together. And it's multiple solutions. It's not just one. It's not just recycling or it's not just turning off the lights or, you know, conserving certain things or driving a more energy efficient car. Right. Or being a vegetarian. Each one is big. Huge. And each one, I mean, everything, every little bit helps. Right. But you need to do them all if we're going to make a big enough impact. Okay. So let's get back to some good stuff. Feel the good stuff. I love, obviously you and I love horses and the history of horses. Chris, you know why I love horses? What? I just like looking at them. Okay. They're pretty. But let me ask you this. Here's why I love horses. Because they are amazing animals. And they're amazing to work with. They are intelligent. They are loyal. They are, you know, fun. It's so much fun to work with them and yeah. ride them and, and be around them. But let me ask you this. This is this is one of the major reasons I love horses. Can you think of another species on Earth that has had more impact on, on human evolution on our development in the last five, 6,000 years. Is there any other animal that has had a bigger impact than horses? I mean, I know where you're going with this. And so, but I would say no. I mean, as the, far as we our, domesticated chickens, they're, they're yeah, yummy and yeah. the eggs are great. Right. <laughs> we yeah. have and domesticated we all, cows and we pigs. love our dogs. We love our dogs. And my dog makes me a better person. It better. And they were good to help keep us safe. Right. But I cannot ride my dog into a warfare. No, no. And not just warfare, but yeah. what? Like, or to the store. Right. <laughs> or spread our genetics. Yeah. Or populate the earth. Now, it's it's bad news for the rest of the species because thanks to horses. But for us, it has been amazing. Horses yeah. have changed the trajectory. Horsepower. Yeah. Of human right? evolution. Yeah. If it wasn't for horses, we would not be sitting here recording over a computer, you know, where we're going to send this out into cyberspace and people are going to listen to it. 
thanks to horses. Yeah. Because if, if we didn't have them, we'd still be back, probably not be hunter. I mean, I imagine we would evolve eventually. Sure. We'd get Maybe we'd ride cows. cows. I don't know. But cows aren't very efficient. No. But because of them, because somebody was brave enough, man or woman, probably a woman, right? You know, of course. <laughs> never, probably like a grandma. <laughs> probably grandma. Got on the back of a horse for the first time. And they were able to to not only spread out, but trade. And yeah, warfare obviously is is a horrible human condition that that we have still, and and that helped you know drive some advancements. But still, if it wasn't for horses, we would not be where we are today. Yeah, I mean, we and then and people yeah. uh, survived off of them in certain right. cultures. Yeah, and, and eat, you know, people still do eat horses, mm-hmm. but that all started about six thousand years ago. And but like, it, oh yeah. But it should be clarified that the pea horse was, was not a part no, of this. No, it was not. That was the tarpon. Right. But, yeah, it still sold the horse. You know? yeah, That's why it, I said this could turn yeah. into an eight-hour podcast yeah. about horses, but it won't. Just really quickly, so the domestic horses, there's almost close to 60 million. It's about 58 million horses worldwide. Almost 600 breeds, like we said, from the ankle biters up. And they're just, they're they're awesome. Przewalski horses. So we know, I guess we know a lot about Przewalski horses because we know a lot about domestic horses. Physically, not a whole huge difference besides, yeah, different chromosome count. But even, you know, the physiology of a Przewalski horse is the same as a Grevy zebra, mostly. For the most part, for sure. Are some differences. And I picked the Grevy zebra because not only is it your favorite or one of your favorites. No, it's my hands Your favorite, favorite. favorite. <laughs> okay. <laughs> your hands on favorite. So the Grevy zebra, you know, is so cool because it's desert loving and, you know, they are just awesome looking, different yeah, stripe patterns. Yeah, than they're bigger zebras. and their stripes go all the way around the belly. They don't have the typical white belly that right, you, right. you think of. The Physically, the brain, the teeth, the stomachs, most the same. Absolutely. Yeah. Reproduction, so, same. Right. So that's what Similar. we know a lot about. Now, in Przewalski horse, males are called stallions, females are called mares, babies are called foals. All the stuff we love about them. Can you see me smiling right now? <laughs> Just mentioning those yeah. words makes me happy. I'm such a dork. I know. I love ba- I love the baby horses, though. They're the best. Or yeah. baby zebras. Or, you know, we talk about baby cheetahs. <sighs> Anything. Baby. Yeah, I don't know. You said baby leopards, snow leopards, probably the clotted leopards, yeah. cutest. I don't know. I don't know. Even baby horses are pretty great, even though they bite you sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> They're love bites. They are, yeah. You know how many times I got bitten in the butt from a baby foal? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Um, Przewalski horses can live up to about 30 in the wild. 20, yeah, mid-20s is probably average. And even domestic horses, that's kind of an average lifespan. But, you know, even with medicine, a lot of horses can live into their 30s. Yes. I have a 32-year-old mare right now that's... Healthy as can be. Yeah. Healthy so, and happy. Yeah. So they can live in captivity that long. And, spo- world, and spoiled rotten. And spoiled, yeah, of course. <laughs> I think the world record on the horse is like 53 years old. Yeah, the oldest horse in the world. Wow. Yeah. But most don't live that long. I was, you yeah. can hear me kind of breathe. Like, how long am I going to pay for this <laughs> horse? <laughs> 20 more years, yeah. <laughs> 20 more years, Angie. <sighs> um, but yeah, they, you know, life cycle is going to be the same as, as our regular domestic horses. By about three, they're teenagers, almost adults, almost fully grown at five. They, the Przewalski horse is about a, a medium size, pony size horse. You know, not quite as tall as a thoroughbred or, say, American Quarter Horse. Yeah, it's probably like a big pony size. Right, big pony. So for, they, oh, for our listeners out there, when we say pony, yeah. 
We don't mean like My Little Pony or like a um, like a baby, yeah, yeah, like an ape, um, a baby horse, or it just means a, a smaller size, small horse. horse. Like a, they're five feet at the shoulder is Correct. about, or yes. 142 centimeters at wow. the shoulder. There you go. Hey. I'm getting my uh, Mr. Metric, yeah, my metric stuff. So they only weigh about 700 pounds. So yeah, that's like that's an Arabian horse, which we think is a smaller, normal, average horse. Is about nine hundred pounds. Yeah, you maybe some of the smaller seven hundred pound ones. So they're not huge horses, but uh, not tiny either. They're now real, they generally... they're really robust and sturdy. Yes, for the, the harsh climate that they yeah, live in. Mu- mu- very muscular. If you ever seen them, and I know like you didn't get to to work with these guys. I've I've seen them at the National Zoo. I've seen them at the San Diego Zoo. Those are know, the those are the the two two of the centers. bigger. Players in the industry, right, yeah. Right, that, that have Przewalski horses. Now, there's 1,200 in captivity, but there's a lot in Europe. In a lot in Europe, absolutely. Yeah, and mm-hmm. then like these parks in China and Mongolia. Mm-hmm. Even though they're releasing a lot in the wild, they still have a bunch in captivity that they're 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 watching. Of course. Right? Making sure they're healthy and stuff. Yeah. So their coats, you know, their coat colors, they're done with the reddish hues generally. Really interesting, they have the primitive markings. So when we say primitive, that means we're going back... Like the Somali wild ass has those primitive markings on the legs, like the striping. Like zebras have the striping. So these guys have some some striping, you know, faint striping on their legs, the dorsal stripe down their back. They have a light underside and muzzle, which is like a donkey or wild ass. So, and you said some of the zebras don't have stripes Mm -hmm. along the bellies. So again, very equid. Looks like a, a horse. Stuff like that. And I'm sure they behave just the same, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, for the most part, they behave like a lot of similarities to a lot of wild equids. They're a little bit different than some of the other wild equids, uh, as far as I know, mostly about zebras, of mm-hmm. course, is they don't migrate for, for what we know of them in right. the wild. Right. Um, they typically have, they have a very big area. Studies over Mongolia and China have estimated their home range between 150 up to 825 uh, kilometers squared. Right. And they always look for a permanent water source, which makes sense. And then they like, they like grasslands and patches of forest with rocks. And overall, they're not really a territorial species, but similar to horses, wild horses and horses in general, uh, Przewalski horses are very gregarious by nature. And a group of horses is called a, well, we always think of a herd, but another way to look at it is, another word is a harem. Mm -hmm. And typically, uh, like it's seen with most zebra species, of course, not the grevies. They're different. That's why I like them. I like, I always like (laughs) the, the, yeah, I like the, I like the underdogs. But in general, typically with uh, wild equids, there's usually one dominant stallion, Mm -hmm. lots of mares and lots of young foals. And horses uh, in general, have um, a dominance hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And if you are ever watching horses, you don't have to know anything about horses or about dominance. All you have to see is if you open a gate, which one comes in first, mm-hmm. which one comes in second, right. which one comes in third. And all the that's way down the line. all the way down the line. And it's, it's like strict military, like very strict. Very strict. Yes. And they usually work it out in the beginning mm-hmm. of, uh, and, and you, and then they know where, where their yeah, place where is. Mm-hmm. Now, should, if you're number, you know, if you're ABC, if you're C in line and B should pass of old age, right. there's a good chance you might be challenged by D, but you could move up to the next position. And become, yeah. Mm-hmm. Besties so, with A. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but in general, even with this dominance, um, horse horse communication is very complex, mm-hmm. and it's similar in Przewalski horses. Right. 
So once again, I always, whenever I'm working with young students, you don't have to know a lot about horse behavior to understand what they're thinking for the most part, either towards you or towards the other. Mm -hmm. And so horses, what I tell people is they talk with their ears. Right. And and it's the same with Roswalski's horses. They are going to communicate. They can, if their ears are forward and kind of in an erect position, they're alert or looking around and, you know, maybe looking out for a predator. Or interested too. Or interested. Hey, do you have a treat in that bucket for me? Um, If their ears are kind of just off the side, that usually remains relaxed. But the biggest one you want to look out for, and the biggest one that is part of this dominance hierarchical um, behavior that they have is their ears when they lay their ears back. And they can lay them back all the mm-hmm. way flat till it basically touches the back of their neck. Yeah, the main back, area. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's called pinning their ears. And when you see that, then that's going to usually be followed by a bite, a kick, a something else. Strike him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they use it as a warning sign. So, and so therefore horses are very sensitive mm-hmm. and in general, like with a lot of pets, maybe your dog too, but definitely in the horse world, you've, you probably have always heard people say, oh, horses can read your behavior. Horses mm. horses know when you're scared of them. Right. right. And they're, I don't know if there's a scientific study to it. Um, that maybe, maybe someday somebody will pay me to prove that right, concept, right? right? right. <laughs> Anybody out there listening. But there's truth to it. They, they, they do, they are very sensitive, mm. but I, I think a lot of it's just because they are used to watching all their other herd mates or they've evolved to have these complex social structures. They're very perceptive. They are very, very perceptive. perceptive yeah. So they can pick up on body languages and things like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, working with new students that are scared, which, you know, I mean, some of these horses are, you know, 500 kilograms or 1200 pounds. They're big and yeah. they're strong. And so they are intimidating. And when you go in and you're intimidated and you act like that, the animal knows, Oh, I'm dominant. Right. And so they take advantage of the situation. But anytime I'm working with them, I'm dominant. I'm the one in charge. And I've seen little kids. They're in charge, man. Oh, yeah. And those horses know. Oh, yeah. The little, you know, little yeah. Spitfires. I'm in charge. And those, oh, yeah. Yeah, my li- yeah. My little tiny dictator at home. He, <laughs> my almost Which four-year-old. Because yeah, right, my two-year-old two is like that. <laughs> I have two of them. But no, yeah. my four-year-old is, you know, he's so funny. He... He tells those horses what to do, right. and right. he thinks, you know, and then, but it's a good confidence booster, mm-hmm. and um, and because he's grown up around them, he's right. he doesn't have he's comfortable. The, yeah, he doesn't have a fear of them, and of course, I only put him around safe safe right. animals. But so yeah, they definitely have a lot of signs of uh, of dominance and power and aggression. Mm-hmm. People that work with them and other horses understand. But on the flip side. Horses and including Przewalski horses also have a lot of. Um, uh, we, in the industry, we say affiliative mm-hmm. or um, social behaviors. Very, social, yeah. very, very social as far as standing side by side, um, nuzzling each other. And then there's another fun behavior we call mutual grooming. So it's kind of in the human world. Right. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. Yeah, my I husband, I, yeah. yeah. You yeah. massage my foot, I'll massage your foot. Or sometimes we massage each other's feet at the same time. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Not after a day of work, after, right? Yeah, the zoo world. I saw Sometimes after a day of work, let's be it. Yeah, we're tired over here. Uh, But yeah, so they basically will stand, um, uh, not uh, head, 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 yeah, head to tail, and and groom each other on the neck, and and you see that a lot between friends. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, too, with little because little foals are and and yearlings and whatnot are in in this harem, Mm -hmm. the foals 
and the yearlings have to like tell the big stallion like I'm not a threat. Right. So especially a newborn foal, they do this really cool behavior called clapping, mm-hmm. where they open their mouth and they don't make any vocalization. They just kind of snap back and, and forth, back yeah. and forth, and they're basically saying. And my, well, I don't know what they're saying, but I feel like they're saying like, please don't, yeah, don't um, kick me. I'm yeah, just a baby. Yeah, I'm a baby. And you know, and the yeah. big, the big strong stallions know that, and right. they, you know, and they work with them really well. So yeah, a lot of a lot of um, social behaviors mm-hmm. to uh, which evolutionary in makes terms sense, of evo- right. yeah, in terms of evolution, these behaviors help them survive. Right, right? Yeah, um, it makes sense. I mean, you got to have strong bonds, strong and, numbers, right. survival. Again, and that goes back to you know some of the themes that. Or develop. It's funny. Each each episode, we we discuss kind of the same stuff. And I, I mean, I know we we kind of have the show laid out to talk about these similar things. But there's a similar thing that I'm noticing that where these animals are not just dumb, you know, walking around grazing. Duh, oh, and, Chris, not yeah, at, not at all. Super intelligent. Not at all. a lot of a lot of my uh, earlier graduate work. Mm-hmm. I I I worked right. with them hand in hand and trying trying to understand okay, their. You got to tell this. <laughs> this is the this is my favorite. I mean, I I always scream about Angie and you know Angie's. I, all my other grad students, I love you. Angie's definitely has been one that's it's had okay to a have huge, favorites. Yeah, we has all had have an impact. <laughs> I mean, starting with my first one, he's tough to beat. He's DVM, but yeah, he's a good guy. Each one I get is is almost better than the, the last one. He he uh, he. Uh, Angie has done phenomenal work in this study. Angie, you got to briefly talk about it because I I love bragging about this study. Well, it was a lot of fun. I was, I was tasked with um, wanting to assess the cognition of um, baby horses or mm. foals. I want to test their ability to learn um, how to touch a target stick, just basically a buoy with a stick on the end uh, with their uh, their nose to it. Right, so it's target training. Yeah, and you tar- guys do that. And it's weird because I, you know, I mean, unless you really study animal behavior, but in the zoo world, they use that quite a bit to get I- them to present, sure. to give them medications or get and- them to walk where you want them to walk. And that's, that's where I... St- Stole the idea right. from with all my experience in, um, with positive reinforcement training in the zoo setting because mm-hmm. you can't make a zebra come to you. No, no. But it has to want to come to you. And right. through this type of training, the animals want to work with you. And then that way the vets can check on them. You right. can you can be safe around them. Right. So, yeah. So I stole that and it worked wonderful with these mm-hmm. foals, which are kind of like little wild animals ask, to begin with. Which is great because they were, what, two months old? They, and you're no, tra- no. You were or no. a month old. They were Six a month. Six weeks, right? Six weeks. They Six were four weeks. weeks. Four weeks old they when you started training them. four weeks old when I started it. And they... Uh, they basically learned it so fast. Both groups. That's crazy. <laughs> both groups learned it so fast. I did not see a treatment difference. Okay. But one of my design flaws of the study that I, I realized, of course, all after, science yeah. after the fact, is that I didn't challenge them enough. Like right. they probably needed to be challenged more. And then perhaps I could have tweaked out a difference between the ones that were exposed or mm-hmm. not exposed. But the summary of my research is, is at one month old, you they can train. A horse. And this was, Chris, this was five minutes a day for like five days. I know. That's what's insane about it. It wasn't super like you were quick, like no, hours and hours no, of training. No, no. It was very, they very fast. picked it up like mm-hmm. super fast. And and then what we did is in a month later, A, we saw if they remembered it, right. which they did like in split seconds. Mm-hmm. And then B, if we could take it a little bit further. And, and, they, and then you followed them did. out. I mean, just because we'd spend all day talking about this study too. When they were year year old and two year old, sure. And then yep. you saw treatment differences. We did, yeah. yeah. I saw a little bit. Uh, we filed them out when they were uh, six months old. There was a little bit of a treatment difference to learning new tasks like yeah. trailer so loading. DHA was helpful. Seemed to be helpful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, 
Yeah, Chris. And so what was really exciting was then when we followed them out for at six months and then one year and uh, two years mm-hmm. later, we always tested their memory, but then we challenged them with even harder tests, tasks right. using the target training. And we found at six months that they the ones exposed to DHA in utero, granted, they had not been in the supplement since they were in utero. Right. They were just w- in mama's belly. In mama's yeah. belly. They had, they had a little, they responded a little bit quicker to trailer loading mm-hmm. And then uh, learning the bridling mm-hmm. task at one years old. And then at two years old, testing their memories. Again, mm-hmm. I didn't do any new tasks, but I just because they were at that mm-hmm. point, they were already in a, a riding program. Right, they were but, already being trained. Mm-hmm, but. Yeah, but I just tested their, their memory of it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the ones that were exposed to DHA seem to remember quicker or respond more positive, right, right. whichever way you want us to look at it. But, you know, our numbers were low. And so I would like to... Yeah, I mean, it's it was just a minor... I'm say minor study. I still think it was amazing that you, at a month old you had these guys and walking that's around. Take, right, that's a right. take home message. Like, I mean, I'd recommend DHA, but I mean, in the end, I just think the take home message is a lot of a lot of people don't think that these animals are smart. Yeah, that's and the, they are. They are. They totally smart. And at at, at four weeks old, they're smart. Mm-hmm. And I have delivered a lot of baby horses, and it still amazes me to this day that within the first hour they're standing. Within three to four hours, they can walk and almost run with mom mm-hmm. within a few hours. Whereas we are helpless. Well, and the, and Here I am 40 years later and I'm still helpless. Sure. And, observe, and observing these guys yeah. in the pasture when they were one and two months old for, right. the, for that part of the study. I mean, their social, they had very complex social right. structures. They were understanding language and already. Babies. Mm-hmm. And, and our baby, you know, still pooping their diapers no. at three, four years yeah, old. Yeah, I mean, my 15-month-old yeah. fif- does not understand when the four-year-old is angry that right. he has his toy like or upset. Yeah. Yeah, they, you know, they're, I mean, obviously, there's major differences right. between our species, but... Yeah, they, yeah. they, you know, the horses have to learn that For fast. Being the dominant species on the planet, we're not very smart as babies no. versus horses. No, <laughs> not as big. Horses figure it out pretty fast. Yeah, and yeah. I think the more we study them, the more we, we so realize. You know, then you carry that to other hoofstock species. So, I mean, I know we all think cows are just dumb, but they're not. Oh, no. Yeah, no, not, no and, and pig, smart. Pigs are smarter pigs than are dogs. Very incredibly smart. So, all yes. y'all out there that love dogs, yeah. I'm one of them. Pigs that that pig, yeah. that little potbelly pig, or the I still n- think cats rule the planet. <laughs> I still think they're the smartest because they have, us, you know, well, you we know, feed them all day. And- well, and unfortunately, they're always going to get a bad rap because they're such pains in the butts to train. Yeah, yeah. I think it's probably because they're so smart. They're like, right. you do that. Yeah, they're smart. They're like us. training us. Yeah. That's how smart they are. They've like flipped the coin. <laughs> yeah, 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 little little yeah. turds. All right. Um, so nutrition, really quick. It's pretty easy. They eat grass all day. I yes. mean, there's really not a lot. Like 16 hours a day. Yeah, that's what they're made to do. When we did some behavioral research with the Grevy Zebra, small wild ass, domestic horses, and these are all in captive settings, they still just ate all day. So sure. it's kind of boring. Thanks, Angie. No, no. Like, even it, you got me into this. <laughs> I was like so excited. You must not love to look at horses as I much do, as I do. And it was fun. I like the small wild ass. I actually saw a lot of cool stuff with them. Yeah. But it is boring. They just eat all day. And then that one, within the, you know, what is it, like within an hour or two, you finally see that one cool behavior. Yeah. And then it's back to eating for two hours. <laughs> so, but that's what they do. That's what they're made to do. They have small stomachs. They get, they eat this grass. They pass it on. They ferment it in their, their hindgut and then pass it through. So don't really need to jump too much into that. No. Uh, they just, they're, they eat grass. Yeah. I mean, that's what they they're gra- they do. They're grazers. Preswalski right. horses, grazers. Right. Uh, zebras, grazers. Mm-hmm. Every species of zebra. The, I think the donkey, the wild asses, 
little bit different. They're a little more opportunistic, I right, think. Right, because they, I mean, they're from desert regions. Sure. So North Africa, even in Asia. They've got to eat some weird stuff to survive. Yeah, and there's not grasslands. Yeah. So they've got to go and find maybe some browse, maybe some other things. Mm-hmm. So their dietary requirements are different than, say, horses. Right. But still pretty similar. I yeah. mean, pretty similar. So reproductive-wise, they're very similar to horses. Um, stallions are going to come of age between two and three years. With mares, it's probably about the same as far as their age. Right. Stallions, probably because of uh, herd dynamics, usually don't breed a mare until mm-hmm. they're probably about five years of age when they burned a little bit higher status. Uh, because st- uh, stallions, once they're kicked out of the herd, they'll sometimes form bachelor groups right. until they can find basically make their own harem. And then they also are seasonally polyesterous, mm-hmm. which what that means is they come into a season, they come into heat or they come into estrus when when it's a good time. Right. And typically that's in the spring here in North America, similar, where, uh, yeah. and over in China and Mongolia, Mongolia, where that's their breeding time. It's about six months right. or so. And their gestation, just like a horse, is about 11 months. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. They... Get pregnant in the spring, in the spring, and then they have babies. Have in the babies, spring. In the spring. and that's you know, anytime you teach reproduction, that's when most animals are having babies. Yeah, the grass is good. Right. I mean, that's when you want to have you want to give your the birds your, are singing, the yeah. insects are. are Who doesn't yeah. love spring? Yeah. Ugh, sometimes I get whiffs of spring. I get yeah. so happy, and their courtship is not too aggressive mm-hmm. because the mares, um, they have what is like an active estrus where they are. Interested. Yeah, they're interested. Yeah. They have behavior, showing behavioral signs, and the and the stallions do a really cool behavior similar to in horses, what's called a Fleming, Fleming response, yeah. where when um, the mare's sen- sen- sending signals through her urine and whatnot, and and he'll sniff that region, and he'll stick his upper lip, lip up, yeah. up to um, smell those goodies yeah. and to to basically probably find out for sure that she's yeah smell they're smelling for hormones mm-hmm, but to make yeah, sure yeah other species of cats do it mm-hmm. and people you always see the funny horse pictures yeah. of the upper lip fly, and that's what it is, is they're, yeah. they're inhaling that yeah they're like that they, aroma they yeah, want yeah, that yeah, strong yeah. aroma yeah. and so so yeah so the mare is typically receptive for the most part and um and then. When foals are born, they're going to stay with their mom for up to two years. They're going to stay in the harem. And then if it's a female, if it's a mare, it'll stay mm-hmm. most likely in the harem. Um, if it's a stallion, he'll probably be kicked out because that whole dominance thing, right. unless he's super strong or something, he, he's probably not going to you know defeat the male. So conservation status, Angie, there's about 2,000 in the world, Brzezowski horses, and about, what, seven 800 in the wild or in parks. Yeah, I think. Isolated, uh, 1,200 mm-hmm. in captivi- captivity. Some of the more recent numbers have said that uh, there's been a, a, a little over 380 that have been born. In the wild. In the wild. Or, mm-hmm. in, or in some probably these parks, you know, because mm-hmm. they're really protected parks. Sure, sure. Or a lot of them. So not free-ranging, you know, they still have fencing around them, right? Right. Mm-hmm. right. Uh, pretty good. The only problem is. Again, coming from 12 animals, they're highly inbred, which has led to some behavioral issues. I know a couple studies where I've read where stallions have, have killed foals, like just abnormal. That's not normal horse behavior. Some of that's been a problem. I'm reading studies on their uh, genetics. You know, as far as one of the big things in genetics is there's this thing called, I'm, I'm not going to go down this path today. I will eventually because <laughs> he it's, really wants to. I do. I do. But it's called the MHCs major histocompatibility complex. And the one that I really love about this one is just really quickly. I don't know if your siblings and hopefully my sister never hears this or my brother, but (laughs) 
Your, do your siblings ever just stink to you? Like you walk by them and their BO is bad. And you, I mean, they probably they probably say that about me. About I think I'm the, yeah, I the, think I'm the stinky one. Okay, the so you're the stinky of the family for sure. But your spouse probably smells pretty good to you um, most of the time. Not after zookeeping. Not after zookeeping. <laughs> no, but most of the time. No, he smells like a flower. Yes, all the time. yes, and my wife is is that way with me. So they have found in humans and in other species and horses, this MHC is, helps us in mate selection. So when you have meet somebody and they kind of stink to you, that means you probably have very similar genetics. Now the MHC is important because that is what gives us immunity. It's, it's, it, it adds to our immunity genes. What, yeah, it diversifies it. Right. So it makes us fight bugs and, and worms and, and, you know, all the gross stuff that it tries to kill us in our bodies. Well, our MHCs are constantly evolving to stay ahead of parasites and other things. So we can combat these things. So what they have found is if you go, and they've done many studies on this, if you go and smell people, people that smell really good to you, most likely, and not, not being masked by soaps Perfumes. and perfumes and stuff, like right. just their natural scent, if they smell really good to you, chances are, most likely, you have diverse immune genes. Your MHCs are completely different. People that stink to you their natural body odor stinks to you generally means you guys have very similar immune genes and over time we've developed this nose to find mates that will give our offspring the best chance of surviving right so this is why i love it this is why mhc's now i can go all day into mhc stuff and i will dissect it over the next year in this program so anyways they've done that in horses too they the MHCs with the Przewalskis are are very similar, so they're not right. very diverse. Which you is want diverse, yeah. You need more diversity in there to help right. fight off diseases. Exactly. So these animals are at risk in the wild, and this is the problem. And I and there's a per, the purpose I bring this up is not just to go into geeky science stuff. There's always a, a reason I bring this up. When we get down to these small critical populations like the northern whites. There's no diversity there in their genetics. Right. And this is why we need diverse diversity in genetics, I guess. Because a parasite's going to evolve or a virus is going to evolve. Some bacteria is going to evolve and come and hit that population. And it kills off the ones that are susceptible. But because of their genes, other ones are resistant. Well, when everybody has similar genes and we find that one disease... That wipes them all out. They're gone. Right. They're done. There's not the stand. The right. Li- the ones left standing. Right. So you know when d- diseases hit a population, that's why we want a, mm-hmm. a diverse set. Well, and in speaking of diseases, um, these although these horses, the pea horses, and their numbers are doing better, mm-hmm. they are still very susceptible, like you said, to mm-hmm. diseases and lack of genetic diversity. Mm-hmm. But also from potential hybridization with domestic horses mm-hmm. and also diseases that domestic right. horses have. The domestics, yeah, they can spread it pretty well. Like, you know, even dog populations, like we will do African wild dog at some point this next year because uh, feral dogs in Africa have a horrific impact on that on them. And, you know, again, this is why we need to try to maintain these populations at, at healthy levels. It's why SSPs or species survival programs are important. And that, yeah, and that's Stud where... Stud books. And that's oh, where I yeah. think the um, the research that's being done and, and reproductive mm-hmm. and behavioral health of these pea horses in North America and some of the zoological institutions 
is so critical because right. they're also um, saving gametes and mm-hmm. learning about learning more about artificial reproductive yeah, technologies right. to try to j- bank some of these genetics. Right. God forbid if another hard winter or a disease or something did the population, hit the right. population really hard, that maybe we could start all over again. Right. But that takes time, money, and resources. And there's so many other animals that need this. Right. It would be better. It would be better if we could just maintain the population in the wild that we right. have. Right. And and but that's hard because there's that should be the first choice. But then that should be. We but there's backups. Yeah, and that's. I mean, and the um. A, the international group leading these these efforts and these coalitions are smart. The horse, the pea horses, are not all in one park. Mm-hmm. There's three, four, five different parks, but also because of that, there's small fragmented populations. A lot of them are surrounded by livestock and right. pastoral lands. But yeah, and they'll work with they'll work with the the local people mm-hmm. around to help preserve and keep these pea horses safe right. where they're at. Right, right, and that and that's you know reading the reintroduction success stories with them, they have, you have to work with the local populace. Absolutely. And they have established these regions where they can, you know, release them and the locals are invested in those populations. So reading the, the studies on how to successfully reintroduce animals to the wild, it's so complicated and so many issues. (laughs) Again, a whole nother separate episode. Well, and, 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 and interestingly enough, Chris, there's actually a new science um, in, the, right. in the zoological right. world called reintroduction science. Right. So uh, for a lot of the you know naysayers about um, animals in a captive setting right. or whatnot, that's a different discussion for a different day. But there are actually young scientists, young budding, young minds working to try to figure out how to best right. get these guys back into the wild. Right. And we're talking about like predators, teaching predators how to how to hunt. You know, making sure how do we set up the proper Mm -hmm. environment, even though, you know, there's only a quarter of the natural environment remaining from, say, a thousand or two thousand years ago. Yeah. And with the pea horses, because their climate is so harsh, I mean, we're talking about the Gobi Desert and some of these other places they've been reintroduced, trying to learn from the mistakes of what Mm -hmm. we've done right and what we've done wrong about areas to release them in. And so there's a big push to try to radio collar some of them so we can learn more about them. Yeah, and that brings me to the last thing I, I was going to bring up is I actually read a, a recent article just this past week talking about the radio collars that they initially used with the horses. They hated them. Like you see them on elephants and stuff, these big leather. Yeah, they, invasive. Yeah, they hate them. And, and I can imagine a horse not wanting that, you know, around their neck all the time. So they've actually developed these smaller ones and they've braided them in the manes and tails like we talk about doing with some domestic stuff like Clever. hurricanes and stuff. And that is working just fine. And then they're you know, using these GPS trackers to, to track where they go, study some of their behavior. So, yeah, that's cool that you, you brought that up because I just I mean, I just read that last night. Yeah, I mean, and that's the whole reintroductory science, like mm-hmm. learning more, learning from our mistakes because we're humans. We're not perfect. The well, issues it, are complex. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the Grevy zebra, they had some trouble reintroducing them in uh, the wild because, I think because of poaching, right? The, the, I think they were killed and shot, so the locals weren't yeah, local invested f- mm-hmm. in them. And they've learned. Right. You know, oh, that, we just can't release these animals and, and bless them and say, good luck. No, no. It's, they have to be carefully I think, managed. Yeah, I mean, I think the local, the surrounding, the native local population uh, near a, a reserve mm-hmm. is is one of the biggest 
factors of success right. or not. Right. And, um, and so edu- once again, that's education. why we're here. Yeah. Education, education brings people together and makes people able to make better, well-rounded mm-hmm. decisions. And so that's what we hopefully are doing here each right, week. Right. <laughs> so just really quick conservation tip of the week, recycle. Just let me just re- reiterate that. Just recycle, please. Recycle your paper products. We Angie and I have talked about reducing plastic. We, you know, live it, breathe it, recycle, help. Yep, I brought my water bottle here yeah. today that I fill up. and Yeah, recycling is critical. That That is a big part. So any special organizations to support? Yes, Chris. I'm very excited yeah. about this one, obviously, because it's horse-related. Right, right. But my organization of the week is called Save the Wild Horse, and you can find it at uh, savethewildhorse.org. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Listen. Learn. Share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.